Our second scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Listen for the word of the Lord. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them saying, get up, do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. God, the giver of the senses, the soul, and the heart, speak to us this day. May words that are relevant to you be written on our hearts, and those that are not fall away. In your holy name we pray. Amen. I have been told... One of the great markers of a Shakespearean story is Shakespeare's ability to start in the middle of the action. If a writer introduces the story in the middle of a sword scene or in a dialogue, then you are not going to put it down. Instead, you are hooked. In a similar way, the transfiguration story from the Gospel of Matthew starts in the middle of the action. But unfortunately for us, we lose vital information. Our text for this morning is very neatly, Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9. But our story begins in chapter 16. When we enter into the world of the Gospel of Matthew, starting in chapter 16, we see that the stakes have been raised in Jesus and Peter's relationship. In the middle of that chapter, Peter makes the announcement that Jesus is the Messiah. And the Son of God. Then Jesus follows up with his famous lines. You are Peter. On this rock I will build my church. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom. However, only a couple of lines later when Jesus starts to tell his disciples that he will suffer and be killed in Jerusalem. Peter harshly confronts Jesus and forbids it. Only to have Jesus yell back, get behind me, Satan. This is high drama. 
high intensity point of their relationship, this is the surrounding context of our story this morning. The up and down friendship between Peter and Jesus shades the transfiguration in a particular light. If we do our best to walk in Peter's shoes, we can see where he is coming from. He has been told his entire life in the name of people like Moses and Elijah that God has chosen Israel as God's special people and that they will be given a savior to reestablish their kingdom and special status as the chosen ones. So once Peter realizes Jesus is that savior in our transfiguration text for this morning, he sees Jesus with Moses and Elijah Once he realizes all this, his literal dreams are coming true. He hurries to make some tents so these generals of the great revolution can dwell among God's people and do their redeeming work by conquering Rome. However, Peter is not seeing the big picture. He cannot hear what Jesus has been telling him. His vision is blocked off by the horse blinders of his ambition. His ears are clogged with the prophecy that he wishes to be fulfilled in his own way. And it is not until the climactic moment of this scene on this mountaintop where God swells around Peter and his fellow disciples and bellows out words of commandment that we see just what is fueling Peter's actions. As the scripture tells us, They fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. A couple of years ago, I worked for a church in Philadelphia called Broad Street Ministry. They are a unique church that is half nonprofit, half worshiping community that serves multiple meals a day for people who do not have consistent access to food. One day, I was putting out handouts on the front table near the door before a meal. But once the doors opened, the flyers did not last more than five minutes. Seeing my perplexity, one of the workers at Broad Street graciously explained to me that they never put out limited supplies of materials because the people that they serve often experience the trauma of scarcity. The trauma of scarcity is a psychological term used to describe having a constant fear from the lack of basic needs. The people who came to Broad Street for a free meal often experienced the government taking their houses or having random people on the street or even their own family members stealing their money and food and most personal of belongings. So the worker at Broad Street explained to me that when a limited supply of free items were given away, there was a rush to get as many as one could and a focus on how to preserve one's own self. All because of the fear that there will not be enough in the future. Even though the people at Broad Street experience scarcity at its most dire of situation, we can empathize with them on some level because we all know examples of scarcity in our own lives. 
For instance, anyone who has waited to get on an airplane knows what it, that it only takes one person to make a sudden movement towards the boarding line before everyone and their grandmother rushes over to fight over centimeters of space and find themselves for 30 more minutes in an awkward shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder cramped area. We also hear stories of Black Friday where people flood the entrances of stores trampling one another and getting into fistfights over limited amounts of big screens and phones. And I too have experienced somewhat of this mindset in graduate school where there was never a free pizza meeting that I was not present at. <laughs> like Peter, like Peter, we all experience some level of fear about the future that makes us want to cling to what we have in the present. Peter saw his dream of a savior and a redeemer of Israel flashing before his eyes, and he quickly moved to contain it. Even though Jesus was telling him God has much more in store for him, for Israel, and for the rest of the world, Peter could not see it, for his fear was blocking his imagination. And we, too, have many opportunities before us as individuals, as families, as a congregation, as a nation, and as people who are connected in humanity and throughout the globe. But we limit our vision and, our, and the greatness of God being revealed in our lives because we fear of losing what we have. Out of fear, we cling to what we have now and focus on expanding our control, yet fail to see the greatness that is and can be when we trust in the glory of God. One of the benefits of not being stuck in the pages of a story or events in the past is that we can see the bigger picture before Peter can. Whereas Peter is fixed to the limits of his fearful vision and inability to hear, we can appreciate for Peter his experience of the transfiguration. For instance, while Peter might be passive-aggressively muttering complaints at Jesus for making him and his friends climb a ridiculously high mountain, we know that mountains are one of the places where God reveals God's self to people like Moses. Or while Peter sees Jesus appear in dazzling white light with Moses and Elijah and wants to make sure they stay a while before they commence their armed rebellion, we can recognize the importance of Jesus being on the same level as the embodiment of the law and the prophets, essentially justifying Jesus' teachings and authority within all of Holy Scripture. And while Peter is overcome and collapsing to the ground in fear of this overshadowing cloud that is God's presence, we can marvel at God revealing God's self as the brightest of lights enveloping his fearful children, and having God's only son reach out and gently touch them 
telling them to get up and to not be afraid. When the future is an unknown, when a future is an unknown for someone, my mother-in-law often prays to God asking to give them neon signs. Well, in our text for today, the disciples get their own neon sign. Or more accurately, they get something that's 100,000 times better than any neon sign. They get true light and the true sign that has been told to them and Jesus Christ. They have climbed to a mountaintop and have seen their eternal heroes. They have been surrounded by the cloud of the divine and heard God speaking directly to them. They have witnessed their leader Jesus in his true nature as the bright light of Christ. They have literally seen with their eyes and heard with their ears the greatness and the glory of God. And having come face to face with the eternal creator of the expanse, the redeemer of the nations, the spirit of love and mouth of truth, having come face to face with their creator, what is it that they are told to do? Listen to Jesus and to not be afraid. Friends, this good news revealed to the disciples in our text for today is not just for them. For we too have seen this glory. We too have heard this greatness. The array of golds and oranges and yellows displayed in a sunset while crossing a bridge. Or the wind rustling through an open pasture while on the less traveled back roads. When people who live seemingly different lives gather together and realize they are fellow human beings. When youth proclaim truth that stirs our hearts, laughter in living room visits, and on cards that speak words we didn't know we needed. Every time we witness one of these events, we bear witness to the true nature of Christ revealed on that mountaintop and the bright cloud that has enveloped us in this life, calling us to listen and experience the greatness of God all around us, a glory and a greatness that no fear can limit or conquer. During the first months of seminary, I was an eager person and perpetually grinning ear to ear sustained in the cloud of my call to ministry. And then I ran smack into the brick wall that was the fear of the church dying. I remember those moments clearly when I first heard alarming statistics and was told I would eventually have to go into the dreaded words, bivocational ministry, which means being a pastor and doing another job, like being a barista or selling tent poles like Paul. The fear was pervasive in certain areas around the seminary, 
and disseminated from like-minded conferences and congregations. It really shook my understanding of my call to the core. Am I really called to this? Do I know what I'm getting myself into? Will I be able to be a pastor or will I have to do something else? My second year of seminary, I went to Baltimore, Maryland on a, with my classmates on a study of alternative and traditional ministries. One of the places we visited was a small neighborhood church that was having free lunch for its community that suffers from food scarcity and poverty. After walking around several blocks and knocking on doors to invite members of the neighborhood to this meal, I asked the mothers of the church who were in the kitchen, how many people do you all have in worship on Sunday morning? And they responded, we have about 25 people who come to worship on a Sunday morning. I said, okay. And they respond, and then I asked them, how many people do you all feed during the week? And they responded, anywhere from 100 to 200 people on a Sunday morning and Wednesday afternoons. There were four women who were none taller than five foot five in that kitchen. And they served over a hundred people twice a week. And sure enough, that afternoon, when the doors were opened, styrofoam cups were filled, and people sat around table and food, I witnessed all kinds of people come into that small church and where others would have pronounced death, I saw life. Where people would have heard powerlessness, I heard greatness. Where some would have been afraid of the death of the church, I witnessed the never-ending glory of God. What the transfiguration of Jesus Christ revealed to Peter and the disciples on that mountaintop, what the transfiguration of that event means is that through life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have seen the glory and greatness of God. What was true on that mountain in Israel, what was true inside that church in Baltimore, is true in this church this morning and countless places throughout the world that what has been resurrected cannot die, that radical love will never perish, that fear and scarcity will not overcome hope and abundance, and what we are tasked to do is to see, to hear, and believe in the glory and greatness of God, no matter how much or what may come. Let it be so.